What a fascinating story. As I was preparing for it, I, I got caught up in just, just the narrative itself. That's, that's the beautiful thing about Old Testament narrative. You get captured in the story. It's almost like watching a movie to some extent. where We are the audience and we're watching in live action, or at least in recorded action, all these various scenes. But then it hit me that I'm not just a passive audience. The question that this text asks impinges upon me, and it impinges upon you. And the question that came to mind, that almost brought me to tears, when I read verse 8, and I see how Daniel chapter 1 ends, where Daniel is a youth in verse 8, and then he's an old man in verse 21. The question I ask, and a question I want to ask you, what will you do with your life? What will you do with your life? Now that, may, that question may sound more important to you if you are my age or younger. And if you're older, you may be saying, well, how much life do I have left? I've done a lot with my life. So to those who are my senior, I want to ask this other question. How have you been able to endure all that you've had to endure, all of the different cultural shifts you've had to go through, all the various trials you've had to go through? How have you been able to endure faithfully? And to those my age and younger, I ask the same question. If you want to endure faithfully, like those that are older than us in this congregation have, the question is, how will you do it? How will you spend the rest of your life? So I had a hard time, really. How do I break this text up? There's so many places you could camp out at, like here at verse 8. You can spend a whole sermon just on verse 8. Or you can actually start at verse 21, where you see Daniel is an 80-something-year-old man. And Nebuchadnezzar is just a byword now. And here he is, still prominent. But I thought, in order to go through the whole text, I'm going to do what typical pastors do, and it's break it up into three points. Three points. But before that, let's actually pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Oh, Father in heaven, I ask, we ask, oh Lord, with, with humble hearts, with believing hearts, that you open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. That as we hear your word preached, as we read your word, Lord, may your spirit do that mighty work in our hearts, convicting us of sin, enlightening our eyes, turning us from sin and back to the Savior, causing us, O oh Lord, to trust in you. So, Father, may you glorify yourself by being who you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as I said, we're right here in Daniel chapter 1, and we, we come to an interesting pivot in the story. 
an interesting pivot in the story where we learned a few weeks ago that Daniel and Judah, or should I say Judah and Daniel and a host of others were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. They're conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And in verses 1 through 7, we see that this Babylonian Empire is actually putting them through in a sort of assimilation program. They're trying to re-identify these Israelites through education, through culture, and through language. If these Judeans are going to prosper in this land, if they're going to survive in this land, they must do as the Babylonians do. They must become Babylonians. They must bow the knee to their cultural gods. They must know its history. They must adore its history. So that's, where we, that's the problem we have in this text. That's the dilemma we have in this text. As Pastor Craig brought up a few weeks ago, the scene we have here is a God, Yahweh, looks as though he's been defeated and his people have been defeated. That's what it looks like. And here they are, these young boys, and by the way, young people, the scholars estimate that these, teen, these teenagers were anywhere between 12 and 15 years old. 12 and 15 years old. Now, mother and father, look at your teenager. Could you imagine them being stripped away from you, brought to a foreign land, and would you expect them to stand firm as Daniel has? So the question is this, as I asked earlier, if you want to live faithfully in a world that is not your home, how will you do it? And I think our text answers it in three ways. The first is know your identity. Know your identity. The second is trust in God's surprising and quiet sovereignty. And the third is know your eschatology. That's, that's a big word, I understand, but it is such a beautiful word for the Christian, and we'll understand when we get there. But the first part we have is here is trust, or should I say know your identity. Know your identity. So as I said earlier, we, we come to a big, interesting shift here. Big, interesting shift. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up, his, made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, with the wine which he drank so that he could, so, so he sought permission from the command of the officials that he might not defile himself. This is a great transition. Because up to this point, we have seen this total onslaught of Babylonian power, Babylonian culture undoing everything that these Judeans once had known. Undoing everything. They, are, they have been put into the finest institutions. They, have learned from, they are learning from the finest scholars in talking heads. They're learning the sciences and the language. They're being, in a sense, re-identified. But the text here shifts from the power and dominance of Babylon to the faithfulness of God's people. This is one of the reasons why historians, or should I say secular historians, despise the way biblical writers portray history. 
Because a historian would not dare chime in and say something like this. It seems so subjective. It seems so subjective, but here the text zooms in not on the power of the culture surrounding Daniel, but on the faithfulness of Daniel's heart. And I think there's a lesson here, even in the transition, there's, a, there's great theology here, even in the way this text shifts. And it teaches us this, that the most important decisions that happen in human history happen here in the church. Happen here when you choose to be faithful to God. Happen here when you stand for righteousness. So Daniel makes up his mind. Other text says that he determines. But the text actually wants us to feel a certain edge to what's going on here. I don't know if you noticed it. It's hard to pick up in our translations, but these translations are fine. I'm not trying to undo our translations, but there's, there's an edge here that the writer wants us to hear. Did you, under, did you see how verse 7 had the word set twice? Set twice. Look at verse 7. Let's go back to verse 7. Then the commander of the officials set new names is the actual word. Set new names to, the, to, to them. And to Daniel, he set the name Belteshazzar. And then here in verse 8, the word is actually, and but Daniel set it upon his heart. Do you feel the edge? Babylonian has this setting agenda. But Daniel says no. I'm going to do some setting of my own. I am not going to defile myself. I am not going to completely let Babylon ravage my heart and take full residence in my heart. I'm not going to let the culture take up full residence in my heart. And he draws in a line in the sand right here in verse 8. So the question is, why does he draw the line in the sand here? He took a new name. He was learning Babylonian theology. He was learning Babylonian astrology. He was learning Babylonian history. All of these things would have been not good. But here he draws a line in the sand. Well, the, the immediate answer, it says in the text, that he would not defile himself. Now, what about the food would have, would have defiled himself? Well, we, a, a little Hebrew dietary law may be in place here. So some people take this as it is a dietary law. Back in, Le- back in Leviticus, God told the people that you shouldn't eat certain types of meat. And it gives a long list, Leviticus chapter 11, a long list. The problem is, why does Daniel take the wine? Why, why does he not take the wine? So the dietary law doesn't fully explain what's going on here. The second could be religious. This food was most certainly, most possibly offered to idols. And back in Exodus 34, it's, that's forbidden that a, Jew, that a Hebrew should not eat foods offered to foreign gods, to idols. Well, as we read in the text, he takes the vegetables. What assurance do they have that the vegetables themselves weren't offered to idols? Other people say it is allegiance. Daniel doesn't want to show allegiance. The problem is, this food that they, that they assigned themselves of just vegetables and waters would have been government-regulated anyways. 
So what exactly is the defilement here? Because in three turns, at three points, in three areas of, of Levitical law, of Hebrew theology, we learned that they were going to be compromising themselves. They were in trouble of identifying themselves with Babylon and not with the one true God. So what exactly is the problem? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us what the problem is. It doesn't say this is exactly why or exactly how not or eating the food and drinking the king's wine was actually going to defile. So I think one we can take this is as Daniel is defending the final frontier in his heart. This is one area he can say no to. This is one area he will not identify with Babylon. He's on the defensive now. Do you see that? Where Daniel, that's why the text moves so quickly through this, this onslaught of Babylonian agenda. And then it jumps straight into, no, 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 no. Daniel sets his heart. I am not going to go any further. I will not let Babylon take full root in my heart. Remember, we are at this question. How can we live faithfully in a world that is not our own? And here's where I can, I can say, you, can, you should be like Daniel here. You should be like Daniel here. We should look at Daniel and see, yes, we should see an example. But like all human beings in the Bible that are used as examples, they're also used as arrows, where they point beyond themselves to something greater. And we'll get to that point in a moment. But here, I want us to see the fidelity of Daniel. He is going to keep his identity as a child of God. He will not let the culture around him pitch tents and build houses and build homes and take up full residence in all corners of his heart. He will not defile himself. Let me, give an, let me give an example from my own life, if I may, on how this could, this could possibly look. It's a very simple one. And I'll, I'll have to be careful in giving explicit examples on what you should and should not do here, because the text doesn't give you explicit examples on what you should and should not do. But here's something that I found. When I'm scrolling through social media, especially during this pandemic, scrolling, 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 I find my heart gets bitter. I find I get angry. I find that I start seeing sin in everybody else and not in myself. I find myself seeing enemies in the other person, in, in that party and in that party. I find myself getting envious. That's exactly what this culture drives home to us. Does it not? And for me, that's, that's, that could be possibly the frontier of my heart. I need to say, I am not going to give myself, or should I say, I'm not going to give this culture full reign in my heart. I need to turn off my phone and open my Bible. I need to bend my knee and pray to God. I need to pray for my enemies as Christ prayed for his enemies. I need to love my enemies as Christ loved my enemies. But no, the culture wants it to go the other way around cancel. And I find myself wanting to cancel out people. 
Do not let Babylon have full sway in your heart. Remember your identity. So, how can we as Christians faithfully endure trials and tribulations in a world not our home? We said our, our first point is remember your identity. The second is trust in God's surprising and quiet sovereignty. And I use that purposely, trusting in God's quiet or surprising and quiet sovereignty. Look how verse 9 starts off. After Daniel requests, after Daniel decides he's not going to defile himself, he requests the chief of officials that he not eat, that he not drink from the king's choice foods and the king's choice drink. And this is the response by God. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Just like that. God granted or God gave. Now remember how our text starts off. Remember how our text starts off. It jumps into human history where we see Babylon takes over Judah. But then the text chimes in and says, no, 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 actually behind the scenes, what's actually going on is God handed over Judah. Here is the second of three God gave sections, first in verse 2, here in verse 9, and then next in verse 17. The text breaks up that way. The text wants us to know that God is sovereign even though it may be quiet, even though it may not seem very obtrusive. But notice the first two words. What are the words that stand out to you there? Favor and compassion. Favor and compassion. Underline that word, highlight that word, circle that word, remember those words. For it is grace, it is favor and compassion that undergird everything that you do, Christian. What what does David say in Psalm 23? Near the end, at the end, he comes with this confidence that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely. A great word of confidence. And the text here wants you to have that great assurance. But how does this grace and favor work out? Remember how I said it's surprising and it's quiet. Well, here's how it's surprising. Notice how it goes. Daniel asked the chief official, can I not eat from the choice foods and the choice drink? And this chief official says, he doesn't really say no. He says, I'm scared. That's what he says. He says, I can't do that because the king will have my head. The king will have my head. So Daniel hits an obstacle. He basically gets, find out another another way. This isn't the way. And then Daniel, hungry for righteousness, he takes another route and he asks the next official. He asks the next one. Now notice, notice how this grace and favor by God doesn't produce in Daniel this revolutionary mindset. He doesn't just balk. He doesn't just st- st- stick his foot in the ground. No, there's wisdom here. There's real wisdom here in how he approaches. He, there's, there's, there's a measure of respect for Babylon and their authority. He first goes to the chief official, then he goes to the overseer. There's a lesson there in wisdom for us. 
Not everything is revolutionary. Not everything is a brick wall to tear down. So what happens? This overseer, after hearing Daniel's proposal, Daniel basically says, hey, feed us vegetables and give us water for 10 days. And then after those 10 days, let your eyes test us. That's all he says. And this overseer, for don't know how or understand why he had this authority, but he agrees to this proposition. He agrees to this bargaining. And there it is. There's the surprising sovereignty of God. It's a slice of goodness in the heart of Babylon. Who would expect that? Who would expect Babylon to be kind? An example is to be given here. This is a, a very simple one. There was a few times, or it was one time, I was driving through Death Valley in eastern border of California going on into Nevada. And Death Valley is called that. If you've ever been there, you know why. There's not much living in Death Valley. It's very hot. And this isn't the summer. It's very hot. And as I was driving in the middle of the day, there's no clouds in the sky except this one cloud. And guess where the cloud's at? It's over my car <laughs> as I'm driving. So for, for a few moments, there is shade. It's not as hot. The sun's not glaring in my eyes. It's a slice of comfort in a place that is called and known for death. And here is a place where Daniel and his friends are. It's known for being anti-Yahweh. Anti-Yahweh. Anti-Hebrew. Anti-God's covenant with Abraham. Anti-all of it. And here it is. They're shown favor. Should we expect anything less from God? For him to surprise us, to, to surprise you with his sovereignty, with his good sovereignty, his good hand, his favorable hand. Should we expect anything less? And how dare we when we do? We see it here in, in black and white. You hear it in my voice. You cannot walk out of here saying, I've never heard that God was good. I've just told you. And you've seen it. God is good in his sovereignty. Take a quick stock of your life. Do inventory, saint. Look back at all that you've gone through. And at all those points, God's good hand in your life. That's what this text wants us to see. It's surprising. It's so surprising. But it's also quiet. Notice how, how, notice how this favor and kindness is just tucked away right here in verse 9. Do the overseer know that he was responding and acting upon God's goodness and kindness? Did Nebuchadnezzar know? Did they look at it and say, oh, Yahweh is being good to you? No. Because what does the psalmist say? Like, like water in the hand. You know how when you put, when you underneath the faucet, you let water run in your hand, you can stir it wherever you want? That's what the king's heart is in the hand of God. Stirs it wherever he wants. And here he is stirring the hand of the, of the, the powers that be towards favor. 
We should trust in this sovereignty. We should trust and, and expect God not to, not to come in flash, not to come with big bang, but in the quietness as we see here. So how can we faithfully live in a world increasingly not our own? Well, the first, as I said, we should remember your identity. The second, trust in God's surprising and quiet sovereignty. And lastly, know your eschatology. Know your eschatology. What, what, what happens here? Verses 17 all the way through 21. Well, you know the story. Daniel and his, Daniel and his three friends go through these ten days, and it's successful. We, we actually enter into another God gave section right here in verse 17. It's for these four use. God gave them knowledge and intelligence. God gave them. Again, we see the sovereignty of God working out. And then these four, five, four young men actually are far superior in their appearance and in their intellect than all the other youths of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at them and he says, you are going to stand in my court and serve me. The great king at that point of the known world issues this edict and it says, I am choosing you to be my servants, not knowing that it was God choosing Nebuchadnezzar and choosing these young men to serve his purposes. But camp out at verse 21 because the text pushes the fast forward button and presses on 70 years forward. This big jump from the time that Daniel is a, between 12 and 15 years old to the time he's 85, possibly. He's an old man now. But notice who's not mentioned. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Babylon becomes a footnote to Daniel's story. The great empires that transpired from the time Daniel entered into Babylon to the time of Cyrus. There was two, three, or four kingdoms, and all those kingdoms fell, and Daniel still is there. Daniel's still there. And that should be of great comfort, because here is your eschatology, church. That the world may go to hell in a handbasket, we may not get the governors and the presidents we want. We may not get the justice we want. But as the song we sang, we will come to that feast one day of joy and laughter where all the empires of this world will be footnotes to us. That's what they'll be. Just memories that will serve to prove to us for all eternity, that God is good. And that he has worked out all things according to the counsel of his will. That he, has, that he withheld nothing from you in this life. Nothing good. And we will sit at the feast in all the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, all of the evil empires, all of the sins, all, everything that we have suffered through. will just be memories not current experiences. We will sit with our Savior at this feast. What we taste here in part, we will taste in full 
We will stick our needs underneath the table and we will sit around and we will look at our Savior and feast together. And it is that vision, it is that vision that should frame our life. That should remind us whether it whether cancer ravages our body, whether racism echoes on and on in our lifetime, whether injustices go on and on and on and on and on. To put it simply, God is going to handle it. God is going to fix it. He's proven it in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the resurrection of His Son. And now you have a king in heaven who rules over all kingdoms, and he has promised you that he will bring you home. So how are we, as Daniel, to live faithfully in this dark world? Know your identity. You are in Christ. That defines you. That is the ultimate fact about your life. Know your identity. Trust in God's surprising and quiet sovereignty. And lastly, oh, know your eschatology and love it. Meditate on that great day. Amen?